it's not um, and I'm upfront with people about this it's not completely getting rid of the impulsivity because that would be like saying getting rid of our ADHD impulsivity is a part of ADHD like good luck getting rid of it and you know I'm very upfront that I'm still very impulsive when it comes to money I still impulsively spend and you know I show that on my social media that You can impulsively spend, you can reduce it, like reducing is a very, very good idea, but you can only do that, as you said, when you have compassion and when you recognize that cycle that, okay, well, I've I've overspent or I've impulsively spent, which means that I'm not going to have as much money to put towards something that I probably should have. And then feeling that shame and dealing with that shame rather than letting it, you know, really stuffing up your finances because it's just then going to continue if you don't deal with that shame it's going to continue you're going to do it all over again you're going to feel that shame again you're going to avoid and keep on that spiral and keep on that cycle so yeah a hundred percent it's about you know it's it's often not about the money it's about the feelings behind the money and how you approach it how you're feeling when you approach your money and budgeting and spending and things like that Welcome to Princess and the Pea podcast, a show where we talk about all things neurodiversity with those who know it best, lived experience, of course. I'm your host, Annie Crow, and I'm an autistic ADHDer. I started this podcast so I could share meaningful conversations that explore the lives of neurodivergent people like myself. We talk about everything from employment to healthcare, education, parenting, relationships, mental health, and more but all with a neurospicy lens. Before we kick off, I just wanted to add a quick content warning for Little Ears. This podcast will be discussing mental health issues and serious adult business. So chuck on your headphones and grab a cup of tea. And as Bluey likes to say, let's do this. Today's guest is money master and neurodivergent mother, Tina from Diverse Accountants. And who better to help us with our money woes than a fellow ADHDer who truly understands our divergent minds? No more shame or embarrassment dealing with accountants who don't understand why it is so hard for you to keep your receipts or stick to a budget. Tina is an accountant, financial coach, and self-proclaimed numbers nerd. After her son was diagnosed as ADHD and autistic, she quickly discovered that she was too. Although she only currently has an ADHD diagnosis and is still looking into autism, but highly relates to the experiences of autistic women. Outside of work, she is a wife, mum of two wonderful neurodivergent kiddos, and is obsessed with her two cats and adorable dash hound. She is Queensland-based, my birth state, and is someone you will want to follow on social media for some awesome neurodiversity-affirming financial tips and advice. 
This episode was once again a bit of a therapy session for me. I feel like it is very appropriate that the cover art for Princess and the Pea is me chilling on a bed. I like to get personal and clearly way too often. I found it so validating to talk to a financial professional that truly understood my own money struggles. Just a heads up, we don't actually start talking about finances till about halfway through. I had far too much fun talking about diagnosis and motherhood to start off with. I hope you enjoy my chat with Tina just as much as I did. Let's go. Hi, Tina. Welcome. Thank you for coming on the show. Hi, thank you so much for the invite. No worries. So so great to to find a a, a neurodivergent uh, accountant in Australia. It's so so nice to have you out there helping those of us who desperately need help with money. <laughs> You're so welcome. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. No, I I can't even remember how I came across you to be honest. But you know, I. Sp- I pretty much stalk everyone in this space. So <laughs> when I did, I was like, oh, that's so good because I am so bad with my money. Uh, and I, I'm sure that some people listening up, well, I hope I'm not the only one. <laughs> mm, you're not. Don't uh, worry. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that because I know some some neurodivergent people are probably very good with money um, yep. because we are diverse, right? Mm. Uh, but then there's probably a lot of us like me who are a hot mess. <laughs> So I thought we would start off talking about your own journey uh, Mm -hmm. and then maybe I could dive into some money questions. How's that sound? Sure. Sounds good. Yeah. Your son was diagnosed with ADHD and autism and then you found out that you might be slash are ADHD too, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Yes, that's right. Uh, Yeah. So what was it in the diagnostic process of your son getting assessed that made you start to think, hmm? This might be me. Oh, there were a few things. Um, to be honest, when he first got diagnosed, it wasn't it wasn't really much of a process, if I'm honest, because, well, I mean, even though it was a process, uh, I did not even think that he would come out with um, a diagnosis of autism or ADHD. I just thought he had anxiety. So, <laughs> yeah, so um, when we... Sounds like he's good at masking. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yep. And, you know, there were, there were people looking back, there were people that did sort of gently try to say you know is there something and I just always brushed it off I was like no no like he's such like me as a kid and you know I'm not diagnosed with anything (laughs) um so he mustn't be yeah exactly (laughs) um I just thought you know the apple doesn't fall far from the tree uh but we when we did you know all the assessments and he had his appointments with the pediatrician and it came out with a diagnosis of there's a bit of a list of stuff, but the main things are ADHD, autism, uh, and generalized anxiety. Yeah, I was so taken aback because it was not even something that was on my radar. And I just immediately had to start researching. Uh, obviously, you know, I knew a little bit more about uh, autism because I feel like it's spoken about a lot more. And, you know, the idea of ADHD is to at the time to me was you know what we had thought about ADHD in the 90s the little boy who was disruptive bouncing off the walls and I was like this can't be right because I would have heard about Jack if he was like this and um, at school and all that and yeah I started researching uh, started looking into what it meant and then I started to see that you know there's um, different presentations of ADHD and it's actually nothing like 
uh, what we thought of way back then. Uh, We now know a lot more and yeah, there's a lot more information coming out about ADHD. So yeah, I started researching as much as I could, um, podcasts, YouTube, um, research papers that I came across, um, reading about um, you know, things from experts, everything, just so I could know more so I could help him. And in that process, I started um, ticking a lot of boxes of things that I was reading. And I was like, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, there's um, there might be something here. So then I changed my research to ADHD in adults. And what I came across was my entire adult life. And it was just... Amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. Made so much sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I didn't even know, like, you know, I always thought I was lazy and just really unproductive and, um, you know, I just couldn't think straight and blah, blah, blah. And then when I found these answers to everything that I was struggling with, it was just, it was life-changing. Absolutely. I can completely relate from my own journey. I was wondering, uh, reflecting on that research period, did you notice a big difference between looking at more like the medical experts and and more traditional research versus listening to, say, podcasts and social media that was more of the lived experience angle? Did you notice quite a difference or like did you see yourself more in one and not the other or I'm just curious? Yeah, 100% I did. That's possibly because, you know, a lot of the research and what is online at the moment is what they've known from kids and, you know, they have, you know, I have heard experts say that, you know, there is a lot more research on kids and, you know, um, how the ad- how ADHD presents in adults um, they don't know a whole lot about. So when I started listening to adults talk about it, that's where I saw myself. I was like, okay, this is these are my people. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. And was it even more so when maybe you started looking at um, like ADHD in women? Yeah, definitely, especially um, after motherhood. Like once you know, women become mothers, how ADHD presents just yes. oh, it explained everything since I've become a mum. Yeah, in my background research on you, I noticed you have experienced postnatal anxiety and I know that that's very common for us neurodivergent folk and it's something that uh, having a almost 16-month-old son myself, uh, it was something that I was very much expecting to experience because I already had anxiety to begin with Mm. and my anxiety didn't get much worse than regular, so I don't think I had postnatal. Um, but I'm curious, when you did go through that, that was obviously pre-diagnosis and before you found out of your own neurodivergence, Did you do you think it would have made much of a difference if you'd known about your ADHD back then? I want to say yes, just because I it could have been more prepared. Uh, but having said that, <laughs> because we don't have all that research on, um, you know, ADHD in adults and I you know especially ADHD in mothers I don't know if there would have been much help out there for me Mm. Uh, so yeah I guess it's anyone's guess whether it would have made made a little bit better I don't know yeah no it's uh, it's a fascinating question for me because uh, I was diagnosed before I had my son and I thought you know at the time doing or my own research similar to you that I had this big advantage because so many women didn't find out about their own ADHD or autism until after their kids were diagnosed. So I'm like, oh, yes, I'm going to get there 
before my kid find like before I found out through my kid so surely that's going to help me transition mm. into motherhood right yeah and you're right it wasn't that helpful in terms of like there's not much out there to support us in that aspect but at the same time I must say that it 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 was very helpful in one is understanding your brain more and having a bit more self-compassion for some of your struggles yes <laughs> yeah. yeah and two you know being able to research and find some professionals that could help maybe put some systems in place to support me in in transitioning to parenthood that mm-hmm. i truly believe that's why i didn't get diagnosed with postnatal anxiety because Mm. You know, I, you obviously you don't know what you, what hasn't happened, but truly, if I didn't have all the support that I had, thanks to being diagnosed mm. uh, and having access to information, I really would have struggled because parenthood is one of the biggest transitions in life. In terms of, yeah, you go from just needing to look after yourself, which most of us have done for years of adulthood before we have kids these days, to literally needing to keep a little blob breathing and living <laughs> and, and for those of us with executive functioning struggles that is hard yeah yep. it is hard I mean it's hard for the neurotypicals it's hard for everyone but like it's it's next level hard when you're neurodivergent <laughs> yep 100% agree with that yeah I just found that really interesting and the other question I wanted to ask you uh and this is more of a I guess, a little gender crusade that I'm on. (laughs) I truly believe that everyone presenting with potential ADHD or autism should be screened for the other because there's such a high rate of co-occurrence. And and, and we call ADHD the gateway drug to autism because so many women especially who eventually find out they have ADHD take quite a few more years to usually figure out they're also autistic, if they are, not saying they all are. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was curious when, you know, yourself or even your daughter, but when you, when you were diagnosed with ADHD and figuring that stuff out, did it cross your mind? Was it raised by medical professionals that you might also be autistic? Yeah, it, it wasn't raised, uh, which now, as you said, when I look back now and, you know, um, as you said, there is that big co-occurrence of it. I definitely think it should be. Yeah. But yeah, it should be, okay, well, you've been diagnosed with this, let's screen you for this. Um, you know, whether whether you know there's a high chance of it or not it should just be automatic Mm. um but yeah it was not raised either with my psychiatrist or my psychologist so yeah whilst I don't know if I'm autistic um there's a good chance I am (laughs) and it's definitely something that I will be um looking at down the track 100% no definitely I just find it so surprising I and I you know my story is quite different in that sense because when I was diagnosed with ADHD which is what I went in to get diagnosed with, mm. having figured that out myself, mm-hmm. I got diagnosed with both. And that's quite a rare story from you know all the advocacy work I do mm. and all the women I speak to. It's so rare <laughs> for any woman to be diagnosed with autism without having figured it out themselves and usually post ADHD diagnosis. Uh, and, you know, I'm generalizing here, obviously, but this is a just a very common theme that yeah. I notice. 
I find it really fascinating because there is a lot of overlap, especially in the executive functioning space. And being someone with both, I find I like I truly find it very hard sometimes to differentiate what's part of my ADHD, what's part of my autism. They're very interlinked. Mm, yeah. Just talking about your diagnosis and how that's changed things for you. Mm-hmm. What have you had access to maybe that you didn't before that diagnosis has given you, such as therapies or ADHD specific strategies? What influence has diagnosis had on your life? Oh, so much. Um, You know, people ask me this question and I don't know how to answer it because so many things just come to mind. (laughs) And I'm like, well, what do I say first? So good. (laughs) You know, as we spoke about before with, you know, the postnatal anxiety, it's, I guess the biggest, the kind of biggest ones for me are um, having more compassion for myself and understanding and constantly reminding myself that my brain is different. And just because somebody else does a certain thing a certain way doesn't mean that I should or I can, you know, just understanding that first and foremost. Love that. And then, you know, things like introducing things like alarms and timers and things like that, uh, being more intentional with um, getting some fitness in, in a way that I love. I used to be in the fitness industry and I just cringe thinking back now about, you know, the things that I thought I had to do that really just did nothing for my mental health or my brain. Uh, and even though, you know, I'm not as fit anymore, I do things that I love and that I can, um, you know, do on, you know, a consistent basis. And I hate saying consistent when it comes to ADHD, but, you know, things that I can, um, yeah, do like, um persistently it's not just a fad right which I think yeah. our, our dopamine seeking brains can get really hooked on fitness fads yeah uh, and and we go hard and we burn out yeah um so I actually I agree I, I hate consistency I think it's a, a neurotypical norm that I'm not a fan yeah. of but yep. at the same time when you can find stuff that works for you and prioritize your health and and that balance. And when I say health, I mean, like, not just fitness health, I mean, like your mental health and your mm. rest health and all of the all of the healths, yep. healths, you know, uh, every element. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that is something to be celebrated, because you've clearly, you know, figured that sweet spot out, which is very hard to do. So I applaud you for that. Yeah. And I even though yeah, I, I'm not a fan you. of consistency, I will celebrate that for you. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's awesome. And and, you know, I think I think it is an important thing to raise as well, because so many of us, I think we really beat ourselves up when we do these new exercise regimes and, you know, we're so good at it for a short period, you know, of a few days, weeks, months, and then we just can't anymore. And every single time yeah. that happens, I don't know about you, that's happened to yeah. me a lot. You just feel like such a failure. Like, why can't I keep going? And it's not because you're a failure. It's because it's not the right fit. And I I love that that links to you saying you don't have to do things a certain way just because others do. And I I think that, you know, reflecting on motherhood and my own journey, motherhood is so heavily steeped in this is how you should feed your baby. This is how you should sleep your baby. This is how, like, there's so many rules. Yep. And so many different opinions that I think it's really easy for us to lose our voices and and not trust our instincts. Yeah. So I think it's really important to note because I, I do think that's a, a huge factor in, I guess, shifting away from the medical model of the disorder part of it 
and and embracing the neurodiversity paradigm of truly just accepting that your brain is different and it doesn't necessarily need to be changed or fixed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And more so that you need to be focusing on changing the environment to suit you, not your brain to suit the environment, which is a uphill battle that no one's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like this is becoming more about like parenting and ADHD than, than money. I oh, will get to the money, I promise, guys. What are some of the sort of biggest parenting challenges that you've faced around your own ADHD uh, and, and how have you overcome them? And when I'm saying that, I'm sort of thinking like, you know, staying organized and not getting too overwhelmed and dealing with schools and daycare and food and clothes and all the executive functioning of parenthood (laughs) how have what systems have you used that you find helpful what's worked for you a few things have worked yeah the one of the big ones is letting go of that expectation um as I touched on before you know it's very easy especially um, within your friends group or on social media to get caught up in what everyone else is doing And considering most people are neurotypical, it's easy to go, well, I can't do that. So I must be a bad parent. Um, I can't keep up to date with this. So I must be um, really not good at this parenting gig. And, you know, if, if you don't understand your brain and give yourself that compassion, you know, it can be so easy just to spiral into a little hole where it's really hard to dig yourself back out of. So the expectations is a big one. And then also off the back of that, it's knowing what your limits are as well. Um, you know, I used to put so many things on my to-do list every day, you know, in regards to parenting and the house and all that kind of stuff. And it just became too much. And, you know, we have less mental energy um, than a neurotypical person might. So once you start (laughs) trying to do everything, you just burn out so quickly, so quickly. Yeah, you're setting yourself up for disappointment, right? (laughs) Yeah, yep, absolutely. Um, And then communication as well, whether that's with your children or your partner or friends, whatever it is. Mm. You know, I, I let my family know if I'm getting overstimulated, if I'm getting, you know, touched out because my kids just want to be all over me and I get overstimulated and touched out very, very quickly. Uh, And I used to not understand why and I'd be like, oh, this is fine and I'd just let myself get overstimulated and touched out and then, you know, no wonder I, um, you know, would just fall into a heap of sadness and tears because I, you know, just couldn't handle it. So, you know, I will com- force yourself through yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yep. So I don't do that anymore. And I communicate um, when I just, you know, need to step away or, um, you know, I need to go somewhere else because it's too loud or. I love that. I mean, I've got <laughs> two ADHD kids, so <laughs> they can be on. quite. It's full on. Yeah, they, it is full on. So, um, yeah, so they're, they're probably the biggest things that I do to sort of help myself um, with parenthood. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that. I was just thinking because um, I am well, I am such a huge proponent of self, self-compassion and, mm. and radical self-acceptance. I think they're so, mm-hmm. so, so important for our mental health as neurodivergent people. But just hearing you say that last bit, it's interesting because, and it, it, you know, I haven't had the experience of changing my approach with kids because I have 
known I was neurodivergent having kids, but I have changed my approach to how I sort of set my own expectations and, and set boundaries. And I think what it was sounding like you were saying, which I can really relate to is, Mm. is having that understanding of your own ADHD and or autism, it, it kind of gives you the, the context and the almost the empowerment to like acknowledge, justify and meet your own needs that you've so you've spent so much of your life ignoring and dismissing and hiding and, and you know, paying the price, which is, you know, burnout and poor mental health and all those things. Mm-hmm. And I just loved hearing that because it's something that I – I'm still learning and still practicing and trying to get better at, but it's something that finding out about my own uh, neurodivergence has really empowered me to question things and really go, am I doing this because everyone else is doing it or am I doing it because it's the best thing for me and what's the cost? It's like such an important question. Yep. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I actually just want to, um, touch on that question because it's, it's a really, really good question. You know, that, that can be anyone listening to this. It doesn't have to necessarily be around parenting. Absolutely. Yeah. It can be yeah. literally, you know, around fitness as we just discussed before. Um, you know, work, study. Yeah. It's, it's everything in life. Yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Just to do, um, what you know that you need for yourself rather than be like, Oh, I should do this because of whatever reason. Yeah. I used to, you know, really force myself out of my comfort zone to be way more social than I ever wanted to be Mm. and and when I say social I mean a specific kind of social like attending big gatherings and that sort of thing I love I'm a very social person but it has to be a certain social like environment and audience (laughs) so I used to you know just try to be normal all the time (laughs) (laughs) right oh yeah (laughs) I thought that everyone was doing that and just not complaining about it yeah. And that everyone was trying to be normal, but like now I realize that most people were probably just being themselves and I was forcing <laughs> myself to fit in their definition of normal. Yeah. Yep. Thank you for pointing that out because you're right, it's not just parenting, it's literally anything in life. Yeah. We should get into the the money stuff. I guess a good segue would be the work situation. So I, I know you um, have done a lot of work uh, as an accountant and yep. you've recently in the last year or so gone out on your own, which is very exciting, yeah. Yeah. Um, and are self-employed, which is awesome. And I think, uh, you know, our brains are so made to be self-employed. Mm. Yep. <laughs> um, but mo- And to be fair, I think that's mostly because the workforce still hasn't quite caught up with being flexible enough to accommodate us very well, but you know, it's, it's getting there. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that it does, but in this, at the same point, um, I guess I wanted to ask you, what, what have you found the biggest benefits of being self-employed versus working for an employer to be? Oh gosh. Um, (laughs) all the easy questions. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, so much, but, uh, probably the, the biggest one, is that I get to work on my own brain and energy schedule. So, you know, when you work for somebody else, you have your designated work hours and it's really discouraged to kind of work outside of that for various reasons, Um, you know, unless, of course, you've got overtime or something to do. But it was never a case of, well, work whenever as long as you get your work done, Um, you know, make sure you're available to clients and blah, blah. It was like, no, 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 you need to work these hours. Yes, 
which really, yeah, doesn't suit my brain and energy levels like at the moment because I'm working for myself. If I wake up at, you know, 6 a.m. and I just straight away get the urge to work for an hour, I can do that. Um, And that's, you know, an hour off my work day. Uh, And, you know, same thing during the day. I can go if I'm just, you know, my brain just stops working at 11 a.m. or something, I can go and I can go do the groceries or, you know, whatever my body feels like doing. Um, So just having that flexibility, yeah, has just been incredible for my energy levels and my focus as well. That's so good. That's so good. And I think like, you know, most of us do really struggle with self-regulation and, and, you know, balancing our energy, you know, Mm -hmm. good old spoon theory and such. And, and I, you know, I, I agree. I, I think that it's like peak productivity for our brains to be able to have that kind of flexibility where, you know, one day, as you probably know, you are so focused and so interested in something that you're working on. Mm. And another day, it's just like, it's not there. And in a traditional workplace, you have to push yourself through that and you are absolutely draining your energies and wasting the good time that you could have been actually getting like twice as much work done Mm. because your body, your brain was like primed for it. Yeah. I just, yeah, I, I think that's something that business needs to sort of come around to because I think that it's the flexibility stuff with uh, traditional work has start, has become better, which is great. Mm. I think workplaces are really trying, but I think there's like the next step of flexibility, which isn't just maybe reduced hours. Mm. It's, it's flex being flexible enough to actually, I guess, be really properly flexible, right? Which is not, I'm going to work these hours on these days. It's I'm going to work a total of these hours during the week and maybe this period I will definitely be in the office if if anyone wants to book meetings or mm-hmm. um but the rest of it is going to fluctuate based on my health, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I I I truly don't even think this is going to help neurodivergent people. I think I think everyone could do with this. Like we all, you know, some people are morning people, some people are evening yeah. people. Yep. Some people like work better in short bursts. Some people want to f- like hyper-focus, you know, it's kind of like that that universal design and tr- mm. true inclusion. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I read this um, really interesting story um, in the Australian Financial Review. Thank you very much. Oh, so impressive. <laughs> um, it actually wasn't. It was, it was on their social media, but you know, anyway. <laughs> Isn't that the only place you can get that stuff these days? <laughs> Exactly. Love it. Yeah, and it was, um, and I, you know, I can't remember, unfortunately, the um, the business or the name of the person who owned the business, but it was basically a story of this lady who owned a business, and she basically shunned the four day work week that a lot of businesses and people are pushing for in favor of true flexibility. And what she meant by that was she lets her employees exactly what you said before, work whenever they want to, as long as they get their hours done. So, you know, if an employee wants to go get their hair done at 10am, go for it. Yeah. You know, as long as you do your hours that day or, you know, for the week. And I was like, that's, that's what true flexibility is. It's not this four day work week where you then have to cram everything into four days and you still need to work more rigid. Yeah. You know, that's not quite because then you've got one day off and it's like maybe great for people who may not have um, children or, Um, you know other family commitments or anything like that but you know for somebody who does have kids to be able to go down to a sports day at 11am on a Wednesday 
um, and they're allowed to do that, that's what I think Mm -hmm. the future of flexibility is. Same. Can you imagine like the uptake in parent participation in school communities Mm. (laughs) which would like you know it wouldn't be that whole full I I haven't even got to that point in my Mm. child's life yet but I'm imagining it would be less about like forcing parents to try and help and more about it actually everyone having the flexibility to just chip in where they can and it's not so desperate for anyone who can escape the traditional work week yeah yep exactly I love that. I need to mm. meet this person. And if you find the article, you need to send it to me. <laughs> I will. <laughs> and I'll, I'll link it for listeners if we can find yep. it. They are a genius. And I completely agree. True flexibility yes. is what needs to be talked about, not just yep. sort of flexible. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, definitely. No, I love that. But anyway, I guess we should talk about money, even though I, I, I've loved <laughs> what are some of the the common themes you see cropping up that you're I'm guessing dominant predominantly neurodivergent clientele what are the big the big struggles is it you know consistency budgeting keeping track tell me yeah um all the things but um the most common ones are impulsive spending yes and then um budgeting so because of the impulsive spending, that kind of throws the budget out of the window. And I find that a lot of people can make a budget. You know, we know what to do when it comes to budgeting. It's like, well, how much money do we have? And then we have expenses and there's our budget. Uh, But unfortunately, because, you know, that impulsive spending props up and, you know, it's hard to follow, makes it hard to follow through on a budget. So, Yeah. um, Yeah. yeah, they're the most common ones when I speak to people about what you know people really need help with yeah absolutely I can relate on a personal level um and professional level of that Mm. and and the interesting thing with impulsivity uh, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this is Mm -hmm. I think it's more like more than just the you know diverging from your budget it's for me especially is that shame that you get when you have Mm. maybe broken away or done something impulsively and you know that there's going to be a cost of that right because if you spend money that was meant to go towards Mm -hmm. this then that is no longer getting funded so even though in the moment it sounds like a great idea and you might really want whatever you're spending money on you still it's almost like you've got that I've ruined it again or I can't I'm not disciplined and I can't stick to a budget Mm -hmm. I mean for me for many years I almost avoided well, I did avoid budgeting because I knew that this was a problem of mine and I did not want to face that shame that was going to be really in my face. Mm-hmm. And I've only recently in the last couple of years gotten quite into budgeting and and I think this is probably aligned with the fact that I understand my brain more since being diagnosed. Yeah. But I think it's helped because even though I still have this this impulsivity in spending, mm-hmm. I'm a lot better at compassionately looking at my budget and expenditure and I, I guess not as quick to judge when I have made less impressive financial decisions. Which, And the reason I mention this is because I think it's so important to acknowledge this because I'm not sure that we can stop the impulsivity. Mm-hmm. I think maybe you can reduce it, but I'm not sure that the stopping it is worth even pursuing. But I do think that reducing the fear and shame around it will empower you like it has yep. for me and as in your clients <laughs> to feel like they 
yeah. can figure out different strategies. Because if, you, if you're so scared of it and so ashamed of it, you're not even willing to try to budget and see what does work, then you're really setting yourself up for failure. But if you're yeah. if you're compassionate enough and self-accepting enough to know that this is a part of your brain, then you're not going to limit yourself from learning from people like you on what strategies might actually really help. Yeah, you've really um, yeah. hit the nail on the head there, like 100% correct. It's, it's not... Um, and I'm upfront with people about this. It's not completely getting rid of the impulsivity because that would be like saying getting rid of our ADHD. Impulsivity is a part of ADHD, like good luck getting rid of it. And, you know, I'm very upfront that I'm still very impulsive when it comes to money. I still impulsively spend. And, you know, I show that on my social media um, that, you know, you can impulsively spend, you can reduce it, like reducing is a very, very good idea, but you can only do that, as you said, when you have compassion and when you recognise that cycle that, okay, well, I've I've overspent or I've impulsively spent, which means that I'm not going to have as much money to put towards something that I probably should have. And then feeling that shame and dealing with that shame rather than letting it, you know, really stuffing up your finances because it's just then going to continue if you don't deal with that shame it's going to continue you're going to do it all over again you're going to feel that shame again you're going to avoid and keep on that spiral and keep on that cycle so yeah yeah a hundred percent it's about you know it's it's often not about the money it's about the feelings behind the money and how you approach it how you're feeling when you approach your money and budgeting and spending and things like that Amazing. Oh, this is this is so satisfying for me to hear because I'm like, I've been trying to figure this stuff out and <laughs> hear it from a professional. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm on the right path. Woo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're doing well. <laughs> um, another thing that I struggle with that um, I'm wondering if, if you see in your clients is budgeting isn't that complex, right? But at the same time, yeah. money is complex. So even though you can find simple budgets, mm. you can find complex budgets, money is complicated, <laughs> whether it's your personal finances or your business finances. And the yeah. thing that's gotten in the way for me, other than what we just spoke about, is um, I guess feeling very overwhelmed that I have to mm -hmm. figure out all the different things I spend my money on, which as someone who like, <laughs> you know, pays my uh, rates or whatever bills at the last minute and maybe forgets to file them properly or keep track of them. And I mean, thank goodness everything's online these days. So it, that's been a big part of why I'm actually starting to be able to budget <laughs> properly. Uh, but yeah, it's very mentally overwhelming to yeah. get started and to figure out not only which budgeting system works, mm -hmm. but put all of that stuff in that maybe because you haven't been paying that much attention for whatever reason <laughs> to your budget or money, because <clears throat> you're embarrassed about it, um, <laughs> that you don't want to have to not only face those yucky feelings, but also yeah. be like maybe quite surprised that you have less of a budget than you thought you did. You know what I mean? Like it's that lack of awareness that, you know, I, the thing I love about the success of budgeting is that you can truly figure out mm. what's your spending capacity, what's your saving capacity, unless you've got all those figures You've got no base point. You've got no starting point. And for me, no, okay, let's let's talk about that first because yeah. I have another thing I want to talk about. Ask you about it. What? How? How do you find clients that are just really overwhelmed and don't know where to start? Yeah. So it's just, you know, it can come down to just 
simplifying it as much as you can. It can be very overwhelming, even for people like me who are in the finance and accounting industry, it absolutely can be overwhelming because, you know, again, as we've spoken about throughout this podcast, you see what other people are doing. Maybe you um, see it on social media with the debt-free, if you follow anyone in the debt-free community who are very, um, you know, very upfront about their budgeting and they show, you know, what they're saving and what they're investing in and all this kind of stuff. And you're just like, oh, should I be doing this? Why am I not doing, why am I not doing this? And then you just feel really overwhelmed. Yeah. And again, it's just knowing your limits when it comes to your brain and your money. And I don't mean limit as in you can't do those things. You absolutely can and save and invest and all that kind of stuff, definitely. But it's yeah. just trying to, if you're feeling overwhelmed, just trying to simplify it and bring it back to basics. You know, what can you do this week that will help you with your money? Maybe you're just going to um, budget for your groceries a little bit better or, you know, by the end of the week, you're going to see how much you spent on groceries or something like that. If you know that you tend to, um, you know, overspend on groceries or just something like that, that'll get you started but you don't have to do the whole thing because once you start and it kind of snowballs from there, you'll eventually get to, um, you know, knowing how much you can save and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I love that you said that because I basically did that. <laughs> my, um, <laughs> I'm trying to think how long ago now, maybe two years. Yeah. And I, I was so overwhelmed and I'm like, where do I start? And my dad's brilliant at budgeting and he's yeah. tried many times over the years to help me. <laughs> Mm. but his beautiful spreadsheets have just been like what and I love spreadsheets but because he made them they suited his brain mm -hmm. and I, I we just it just didn't work for me and I think mo most of it was actually that I just didn't know you know the meaning behind a lot of his calculations and whatever he'd made whereas when I put the effort into figuring out how spreadsheets and budgets work and could sort of pick and choose what worked for me, mm -hmm. it just kind of made it a little bit easier to tackle. But in, in saying that, like I literally just started with maybe just check, just tracking our takeout budget or just tracking our grocery budget. And, and it does, it's, it's like the minute you bite a piece off, it just spirals. And within six months, I'd like completely gotten on top of all of our finances and had a really good snapshot of where we sat and what our expenditure yeah. was like, which is mind blowing because if you'd asked me, six months before that point, I would have been like, there's no way I'm going to be on top of budgeting within 12 months. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, amazing. Yeah. So good. So yeah, I think that's yep. such practical advice and gosh, I wish you'd told me that and not my dad <laughs> given me spreadsheets for the last decade. Because um, yep. yeah, it's so overwhelming. And, and I think that is something that, you know, we, I think executive function plays into this in a big way in the whole, um, you know, we yeah. can get really easily overwhelmed with how big a task is and, you know, you got the analysis paralysis and mm -hmm. procrastination, all those things, um, yep. and I still get affected by them. I, I have good periods where I'm on top of my budget and then a few couple months maybe where I let it go a bit. And But that's okay. Um, you know, at least I have a starting point mm -hmm. now, which is nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, yeah, no, I think it's it's really important. And again, I think it keeps coming back to that messaging that we both keep talking about that I just love that you're coming from a very like neurodiversity affirming approach of mm -hmm. I'm not going to try and solve your ADHD. I'm not going to try and fix you. I'm just going to yep. acknowledge that this is how your brain works and we're going to figure out how to work with that, which is yeah. the greatest message. And I feel like all professionals should come from that angle. Yeah. <laughs> 
love it I love it so no thank you for that that great (laughs) advice (laughs) in terms of budgeting uh, and I know you've got a couple of courses coming up uh, in July for for budgeting I'm I'm gonna sit in on a couple of them Mm -hmm. I'm very excited about my own way that I've sort of figured out budgeting and when I say figured out I mean started (laughs) Mm -hmm. I definitely have room for improvement is yeah like you said listening to those people who are very open on on social media and such about their own budgeting and and debt-free stuff and the people that I really can't stand watching are the ones that are so good at it (laughs) like I and and this is like a theme for me I think because I I watch I watch I watch and read and listen to a lot of uh life self-help life advice stuff well I used to I still do a bit, but it's a little bit more selective these days Um, in the sense that the people I learn the best from are the people that struggle the most. So, and this is why I love that you're doing this because you get our brains, you have our brain, you've been there, you, Mm -hmm. you know, the thing that I find really hard when I see professionals in any space that maybe aren't neurodivergent themselves or have had no exposure is that it's so hard to explain these things because they literally have no concept of it. It's like mm-hmm. explaining to someone why it's hard to cook dinner every night and them just being like, I don't understand how this is hard for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas like when I talk to you or any other neurodiversity affirming practitioner who is in this space and understands our brains, it's so nice because it's so easy to explain our struggles and to feel validated and heard and like that there's there's true hope for us telling me that this should be easy mm-hmm. is not going to make me good at it. <laughs> like yeah. acknowledging yeah. that it's hard and that there's ways around that. That's nice. That's hopeful. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. Yep. Um, and, you know, I guess there will be some people who just will never understand, but I do hope that, you know, as more information comes out and, you know, more people um, are honest and upfront about, you know, if they do get diagnosed with a neurodivergence that, you know, those other people who, even though they'll never experience it, they'll have a little bit more compassion Mm. and empathy. You know, I hear about it, like talking to clients and prospective clients in my accounting practice you know, obviously the, you know, most accountants yeah. are neurotypical. So when somebody with ADHD is like, you know, my last accountant or this accountant or whatever um, doesn't want me to use my own accounting method, for example, you know, um, they maybe they use a spreadsheet because that's what it, what is easiest for them, but they've got accountants trying to get them on, um, you know, a computerised accounting package and they're just like, I can't do it. Whereas these accountants are like, what do you mean you can't do it? Just sign up and use it. And it's like, no, 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 I, I get it. I understand that that's not necessarily easy for yeah. you, even though it's easier for them. That's not necessarily easy for you. And, you know, when when I give those people that validation, they're just like, wow, um, you know, you are exactly what we've been looking for. I'm like, oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I oh, that is just the best story ever. And it's so funny, isn't it, that you know, people who have no exposure to this stuff just really can't wrap their head around. I mean, unless they've I'm not saying that they can't. I I'm mm. sure that they can. Yeah. I'm just saying that until they've been exposed properly mm-hmm. to enough, 
it's so hard for them to to work out why that's complicated. Yeah. And and this is something I deal with quite regularly in in my own life because you know I, I'm a I'm a relatively well educated articulate person and explaining to different professionals that I struggle with certain things. Most of them can't understand that, not only for the reasons you just said, but also it's like they sort of give you that impression mm. that, but you have a brain, you can work it out. And that's just not how our brains work, especially with needing that mm. dopamine factor, needing that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the less barriers we have, mm. the more likely we're even going to do this to yep. begin with, you know, whatever the demand yep. is or or administrative task. Um, so I just love that, you know, and I imagine you are like this in your practice. You're more, mm. more open to seeing like what works for the client yep. and like adapting to help them, which, you know, I think for so long, like healthcare and 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 this type of stuff, all professional services, I guess you could say, uh, have been about, you know, this is the way we do it. This is the system. This works. You need to come to us. And now it's, it's shifting and where, you know, I feel like the consumers are demanding more. And, you know, inclusion and diversity are demanding more. And it's like it's it's no longer mm-hmm. good enough to to say, you know, you need to do it my way. I mean, I think, you know, yeah. that's really going to give you a, a cutting edge in the future of business is if you mm. and, and this is kind of where I think our brains thrive as well, because, you know, a lot of people comment that about rigid thinking and autism, especially. Mm-hmm. But I don't think people understand the nuance of rigid thinking because mm. I think a lot of people think it's like very stereotyped. I can't think outside of the box, but that's not really what rigid thinking is. Mm. <laughs> um, if anything, I think that we're all innovators because we don't conform to social norms that we don't think are logical. Yep. <laughs> and so we're much quicker to question the status quo and to try new things. Like I, the thing I hate most is hearing, oh, well, that's just all the way it's been done. I'm like, so? Yep. <laughs> um so we should change it yeah yeah let's let's innovate evolve yeah get better oh thousand percent yeah yeah I love that I hope all professionals follow your suit and become more flexible and adaptive in in the truest nature so yeah it's just so so exciting to hear what you're doing and I, I think you know I know you're going to do great things. So, oh, thank um, you. <laughs> no, I mean it. I mean, it. I'm so excited to to follow your journey and send every neurodivergent person I know your way. So look out. <laughs> I know a lot of them, and you're going to be busy. <laughs> you're probably already busy, but you're going to be even busier. I am, but it, more the more the merrier. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. Just just grow grow your business and have like loads of neurodivergent accountants. That's what we'll oh, do. That's the dream, isn't it? <laughs> I know. That'd be so good. So good. Um, yeah. So there were my big ticket questions. You know, I'm still pretty new in the space of budgeting and money. And I feel like this is really well timed because uh, I'm at a point in my own journey where I have started to deal with this stuff. And, you know, if I'd have spoken to you three years ago, I would have just been like, how do you do money? <laughs> You know, because I've just Mm. been so avoidant of it most of my adult life. Yeah, I I actually, interestingly, and feel free to to make me feel better and share any embarrassing story, Mm. but uh, I I had a a rough patch many years ago when um, it was not long after my car accident and I was just really struggling with chronic pain and all of that. And I started to have a very special interest in makeup. And I would like spend a lot of time watching YouTube tutorials, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just uh, 
airing my dirty laundry. It's, it's just another Tuesday, whatever. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I got really interested in makeup. And before recently, a few, within the last few years anyway, uh, I, I held a lot of shame about and I didn't talk about. And uh, now I'm all about like, you know, ditch the shame, air it all, silence is deadly. Let's just embrace that we're all imperfect and awesome. <laughs> um, but I, I do, I, I want to share this just because I, I want people listening who might be very critical of themselves like I was to try and maybe give themselves permission to see this in a different light. Anyway, I'll get to the point. <laughs> um, so I got really into makeup tutorials and I, I was pretty limited physically at the time and I was taking a, a couple months off work while I was going through surgeries and recovery and I ended up spending within a six-month period $8,000. Wow. Yeah. Of credit card debt. And I like I'm an impulsive spender, but I've never my impulsive spending is like yeah. extra takeaway or like extra occasionally buying extra clothes yeah. when I probably didn't need them. This is by far one blip of my life where what was going on, woman? Like <laughs> it was so bad. And and my husband very kindly, oh, is it kind? Ignored it at the time because he knew I was in yeah. a very dark place mentally. Aww. And this was the one thing that made me happy. I bought yeah. thousands of dollars worth of makeup. Yes, Mecca and Sephora and Mac, <laughs> you, you've ruined me. <laughs> um, anyway, but at the time, I it made me happy. It got me through a very dark period. Um, but I felt obviously then I had to dig us out of that debt. And, you know, thank God. Mm-hmm. I'm privileged enough that we've done that. But there were years there where I was so mortified by that and never wanted to ever tell anyone about it and just thought, you know, I was such a failure. And then I saw this one psychologist a few years back before I found out about my autism and ADHD. And she was really good, very trauma-informed, like good good sage advice, this psychologist. I've seen many. (laughs) And she's one of the better ones. Uh, And she said to me one day when I was talking to her about this, she said, what would have happened if you didn't spend that money? And I was like, that's an interesting question. And I was like, mm, probs wouldn't be around right now, <laughs> which yeah. is going to a very dark place that I did not expect that would go. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was in a very dark place and it is something that I think, you know, we neurodivergent people like myself do mm-hmm. experience more bouts of depression and suicidal ideation and And it was such an, like Mm. that question just blew my mind because that came out of my mouth, which I didn't expect it to. (laughs) And Mm. immediately I thought, wow, I'm actually really appreciative of this thing that I'm so embarrassed and ashamed Mm. of because it helped me. Yeah. And I guess in my story here, I, I'm I'm trying to say that we can try and look at the impulsivity and the poor choices in a different light sometimes, because I think mm. they are heavily linked sometimes to mental health. And I mean, that one, especially for me, was very much linked to my mental health. And it's just, it gave me permission mm. to not judge myself as heavily, I guess. And I think that's so important because again, if you've got that judgment, and you've got these these things that make it mm-hmm. hard for you to even look at your spending, then how are you ever going to get better? And so that was one of the big turning points for me to start even looking into budgeting and and addressing my finances. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess I just wanted to share that very deep, deep story. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, – thank you for sharing because that's really, really powerful, really powerful. And um, 
it's yeah it's interesting how you know we did touch on that before as well asking yourself a certain question as you know um that person asked you it 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 could be so powerful because you're like oh okay you, you do see it in a different light absolutely yeah yeah, yeah, 100%. And also, I guess it, it, it also took the fear away for me, because there's a part of me that always felt like I could do mm. that again. And I never want to put myself in that much debt without purpose um, yeah. ever again. And I was so scared that because I, I already have impulsivity, that that was a possibility. So not only was I holding the shame that I'd done it in the first place, but I was also very fearful and avoidant of my finances because I thought I could easily do it again, which now I don't have that fear at all because just shifting how I have seen that blip, I guess, has given me so much insight into, I, I truly don't think like the only risk I would ever have of doing that again was if I got extremely depressed again, which thank goodness my mental health is better than ever thanks to having answers and proper support mm-hmm. that took years yeah. to find. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I guess it's that giving us grace and, and and changing the way we judge ourselves and, and blame ourselves for everything because most yeah. of us have spent most of our lives, you know, hating on ourselves for not being able to pay attention or get stuff mm. done or remember take stuff to school or work or all of those things. Like people think about that or hear us talk, like they hear ADHDers talk about this stuff and they're like, oh, everyone does that. Yeah, but yeah. everyone doesn't do it all the time and constantly get those tiny little negative messages that really add up and yeah so I I mean I I love talking about mental health because I I just think it it goes hand in hand with especially late diagnosed folks who haven't had the opportunity I guess to have as good a mental health experience yeah so anyway but yeah if you're listening and and you have struggled with money like that then give yourself a break and ask why and what if you hadn't cuz maybe you'll be like me and be surprised with the answer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To finish on a lighter note, hopefully <laughs> lighter. I have I've loved every minute of this conversation and just oh, oh, me too. I can't wait I can't wait to send your your I'm so excited to get back into my own budgeting (laughs) and get some actually sound neurodivergent advice. Yes, please. So I'm thinking let's shift back to your kids for a second. And I guess I wanted to ask what are your hopes for their future as neurodivergent people growing up Mm -hmm. and, you know, going to enter the world and the workforce and life? What do you what do you hope in terms of how they view themselves and how the world views them and includes them? Big question. Yeah, two parts, I guess. How I want them to view themselves is oh, I don't even know the words. Like I can I can visualize it. I just don't know yes. the words. <laughs> but I want they'll, them they'll come, they'll come. I want them to just be true to themselves and have the confidence that they can do anything that they want and that they don't do something just because their friends are doing it and that they understand themselves to be able to choose what they're going to do with their life. And, you know, I feel the next generation who are 
having the opportunity to get diagnosed so early in life, I do truly believe that they're going to have those opportunities because they're going to have the support from, you know, childhood, unlike a lot of a lot of adults who, you know, aren't getting diagnosed till late 20s, late 30s, some even into their 50s and 60s. So that's what I hope that they carry through life and you know I just I just pray that if they do go choose to work for somebody else that you know by the time that happens employers have a better understanding and you know they have those um you know maybe those flexible work options that we spoke about mm, true like, but even if yeah, yeah even if they don't I just you know I just hope that there's a lot more understanding and you know um, my children would be able to, well, you know, when they're adults, be able to walk into a job and go, I have ADHD or I'm autistic and there's no shame and there's no judgment. And, you know, even if an employer has to learn more about that, they have the opportunities for accommodations and things like that. And I, I, I do believe as well that we'll get there as well because, you know, not only are, you know, the next generation going to grow up in a much better in a much better world. Yep when they do get to that point, I guess it's, you know, us who either got diagnosed or are getting the understanding, we're going to be those employers for those people. Yes. Yeah. I think it's just, you know, all of us who are putting information out there and talking more about it on social media and podcasts and YouTube, like we've just got to keep doing it and we'll get to that point. Yes. Yeah. Saturate the market till they listen. We just have to, because there has to be a turning point. I agree. Um, you know, the the less um, mental health problems that we have into the future, the better. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, the main way of breaking down that stigma is truly raising our voices, sharing our lived experience and connecting and, mm-hmm. and removing the shame that shouldn't even exist. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I just love yeah. your answer. And I think that that really truly does end on a good note because mm. I feel hopeful. And I don't always feel so hopeful. (laughs) So I I think, you know, for my own kid as well and and all the future kiddies, I I also hope that that's where we're headed. And I I do think we are and you and I won't stop till we do. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. Yeah, mama mama bears. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, anyway. Um, No, but thank you so much for all your time today. I've absolutely loved our chat and and I will be sending many people your way. So thank you and and good luck, Tina. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've just really loved talking to you and I hope that, you know, the people that listen just really get something out of this as well. Same. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it. I loved having Tina on the show and was in a very chatty mood. And obviously, we could all use a little bit more money content, or at least I sure could. So, (laughs) Tina is keen to come back next season and talk more money management. Yay! The Australian Financial Review article on flexible work that Tina mentioned is linked in the show notes, which are on our website at www.neurodivergentmillennial.com. It's now unfortunately behind a paywall, but hopefully some of you can access it anyway. And Tina did give us the main gist. If you're new here, I created this podcast as a platform to talk to incredible neurodivergent humans and our allies about how we show up in the world and how we can make a more neuroinclusive society. I only found out about my own neurodivergence at the age of 28 years old, a few years ago now. Before then, I'd spent years trying to understand myself and trying to fix the parts of me that felt broken. 
Growing up, I was labelled too sensitive, too dramatic, too loud, too bossy. And I am all those things. But so what? Why are they considered so bad? Discovering my neurodivergence was initially a shock. And when trying to understand it from a deficit-based medical perspective that was highly stereotyped of a male external presentation, things didn't really make sense. It wasn't until I stumbled across the neurodivergent community on social media and learned all about the social model of disability when I finally made sense of it all. Now I like to help others do the same. Don't forget to head over to our socials and connect at princessinthep.pod and join our Facebook community group to chat more about the show. If you enjoyed this content and want more like it, please leave us a review and share with your friends, family, colleagues and more. It helps a lot. Also, a quick shout out to reaching almost 2,000 downloads in less than two months. I am so happy that you're all enjoying these chats as much as I am. We have the best neurodivergent community. Finally, if you'd like to show us more support and get access to some very exciting resources I've been developing with our guests coming very soon, please head over to ko-fi.com forward slash ndmillennial and buy me a coffee. You can probably tell by my voice I am recovering from being sick. I've just come out of one week isolation with COVID. It finally caught me. What a great birthday present. (laughs) Princess in the Pea is proudly sponsored by my consulting company, Neurodivergent Millennial, leading the way for neurodiversity inclusion in the 21st century. Isn't that inspiring? Thanks for listening and we'll be back next time talking to the delightful Claudia, a new mama like myself and an occupational therapist who has just set up the first Australian Autistic Mothers Support Program with Autism SA. Very exciting and so desperately needed. I wish I had access to something like that last year. Talk to you next time. Over and out. Over and out.